0: Hello, and welcome to Clinical Realities, a new podcast miniseries from The Lancet Rheumatology, where we explore the realities of rheumatology care and research in challenging settings and among underserved and neglected patient populations across the globe. I'm David Liu, a rheumatologist and clinical pharmacologist from Melbourne, Australia, and I'm one of the guest hosts for this series, along with Pooja Mehta from London and Lola Falasinu from California. In this episode of Clinical Realities, we'll be touching on some of the challenges of rheumatology in low to middle income countries, but also some of the good news stories, the stories which might provide a template for strategic improvement in places where rheumatology patients need it the most. Today, we're speaking to someone who can speak to this in a very real and impressive way, Dr. Zifa Ida Day who is from the University of Ghana Medical School in Accra, Ghana, and who is the director of the TRI program, which stands for the Rheumatology Initiative. She has an incredible story to tell, not just relevant to her institution, or her city, or her country, but one which might have real implications for any number of settings. Dr. Day, welcome to Clinical Realities by the Alliance of Rheumatology.
1: Thank you very much, David, for having me here.
0: So Zifa, when you started this program in 2012, you had what must have seemed like an impossible challenge. A country of 26 million people with only one rheumatologist, with no traditional basis for rheumatology to practice, no resources, no government support, and a nearly 50% rate of mortality for lupus in patients. Now, you've built a platform which tackles not just the basics of high-impact clinical care, but health promotion and education, screening, research, capacity building, advocacy, with plenty for us to learn Tell me, how did you go about doing this?
1: So, TRI was um, built, um, we started in 2012 when I came back from training. It was built initially, we started with looking at the situation on the ground. What could we do to improve patient outcomes? So, uh, we identified lack of of training of health personnel, um, lack of training for other health practitioners, lack of education among the general public and the patients, patients were confused. They were being diagnosed now, but they didn't know what to do. They they would ask, am I the only person who has this disease? I want to know somebody else who has this disease. So we looked at it from various um, angles. There was no drugs even for treating the patients. Um, A drug like hydroxychloroquine was not available because of the malaria control program has stopped importing chloroquine so that um, resistance to the uh, plasmodium, will be lowered and use Atomacin-based products so basically all those areas were areas that we had identified so we set around looking at how we could bridge those um, um, gaps so we looked at how to help the patients by setting up a patient um, support group Um, initially our focus was on young people because we thought that was the group that needed the most support But then we ended up um, having the adults also um, asking for their own groups and um, basically found ways to educate the patients, teach them measures that would help improve their outcomes. We had physiotherapy sessions, um, sessions on diet, exercise, and the importance of taking medications, relationships, psychological um, um, sessions, and things that really would help improve their quality of life. And that has been going on since 2012. And we also um, found ways to educate the general public um, using various media and going to churches because we found out there was a huge delay in patients coming to hospitals or to the clinic uh, or even when they came and they were diagnosed because a lot of um, Africans put a lot of um, emphasis on or believe in um, spiritual causes of disease and they would rather seek those care than come to the hospital. And so, if you do not find a way of engaging, then you lose all your patients to um, these um, other alternative places. So, we had to reach out to them, um, go and educate in churches and in other groups, go to schools, and um, educate them about these conditions that they are conditions that are not spiritual but could be treated, and go on um, where we could reach um other people social media campaign was one of our uh, biggest um, avenues for driving this across then also um, in terms of education we realized a lot of the gap was coming from also the health uh, practitioner's um, angle a lot of uh, people were not conversant or um, confident with diagnosing and managing rheumatological conditions and a lot of them had been, of these patients, had been in the care of these um, um, doctors in the periphery for a long time with nothing being done. Patients, basically, were just on insects and getting um, damaged. And so we figured that with only one rheumatologist, um, you definitely cannot go across the country trying to do all these. So we need to find a way of getting the basic um, rheumatology knowledge to the general practitioners um, in the district to be able to at least recognize those diseases, diagnose them, and start some treatment. Be confident enough to start it so that patients will not end up um, having problems. And then, um, once they had done that, um, they could refer to the teaching hospital. Unfortunately, at that time, there was only one teaching hospital um, that um, had a rheumatology clinic, which was in the city center. So patients will be traveling from other parts of the country sometimes taking two days to travel across to come to clinic. Now with this we hope that then that would cut down the um, inconvenience of patients coming all the way even when they came then we had doctors who they could go back to to do their follow-up and they could confidently then call back and if they had any problem then we could help to resolve it. So given the fact that they thought these conditions they were rare in, in our part of the world. We were finding that our clinics were quite overloaded. So we started with just general knowledge on social media for some of these doctors. Then we expanded um as we um, tried and applied for small grants from um Isla and then um, some pharmaceutical companies to organizing day trainings for um doctors in rheumatological conditions. We did that in two of the main city centers and and taught over 300 doctors over a period of time And some of these rheumatological conditions. And really, um, an audit um, later on showed improvement in the diagnosis um, accuracy when patients were referred after some of these sessions were done. With a grant from ILA and the Royal College, that's what we also then identified doctors in each of the districts across the country and brought them to the CC center for a more intense training where um, they learned skills, um, a few basic rheumatological skills, joint injections, um, leadership um, training so that they could impact other people with the knowledge that they had received and delved a little bit more deeper than the day training that we were offering before. And so what we were hoping are these doctors will be then the ambassadors in the various districts where then we had a contact in each district or the 16 districts across um, the country where if patients were referred or we had a, a referral, we could say, okay, see this doctor rather for the doctor to start, um, something. And if he knows, they know they can get in touch with, uh, with us. We also looked at um, as you probably know, for most of the developing countries, there's not enough information on these conditions. So most people think that they are not, they are not there, they don't recognize it as being a priority. Um, infections, other non-communicable diseases are on the priority for, for government. And so we had to really set out to advocate for rheumatological conditions to be recognized uh, for the first time. Um, It was actually captured in the standard treatment guidelines of the country. And we hope that we could do more work in order to prove the burden of the disease so that um, when you go and um, advocate for even basic drugs such as uh, prednisolone to be put on the essential drug list of the country, then um, you would have um, government listen to you and put it on the, the national health insurance and the essential drug list which we managed to achieve, but yet to still get some of these drugs to be um, reimbursed for patients. So that's one of the things that we're still working on and campaigning for uh, for patients' uh, medications to be captured. But we think a lot of these is based on research. And what that has been a challenge because uh, research, unfortunately, needs more resources than um, what our innovation can um, can, can put together. And so we try to build our research and work into um, very basic um, things that we think can help patients trying to collaborate and encourage people to do basic research into rheumatological conditions. A few of our people in the support group who are in graduate programs opt to do Something or rheumatological conditions for their dissertations, and then so that is a, um, a way of gathering some um, additional information or data about their living experiences, some of the surveys um, of uh, rheumatic conditions um, across um, the country. We're looking at how autoimmune diseases may impact on work, so that then we can advocate for um, job allowances um, for some of the patients. Uh, so. We try to make it a participatory type of research, so um, at least we can use the resources that are available to be able to do something that would actually impact on on care um, with the resources that we have. And, and so, in the nutshell, that has been um, where TRI has been focusing on on education, on um, advocacy for our patients, and um, trying to build up some research that would impact the patients' care.
0: I mean, that's an incredible story. And what strikes me from every element of it that you've talked about is that you've really gone about trying to map out how you might go about building a rheumatological platform which might help our patients. And you've looked for the highest impact items. You look to get buy-in from the right people. And then you look to try and target those problems in the most efficient way with the resources that you had. How did you go about trying to assess and figure out what to target in amongst all these programs, in amongst a myriad of issues that you were faced with, this gargantuan task that you were faced with at the beginning?
1: So a lot of things were really non-existent. So you really had to start from the, from the basics. Where, where could you get something done, given the resources that you had in the shortest possible time? And um, there was not time to be too sophisticated. Um, there was no time to try and be too ambitious. Ambition is, is our long-term goal. We have big plans to to do that. But we really looked at what are the simple things we can do, given the resources that we have, but that yeah. would make an impact. And so really, there was nowhere to go, but to just start from where it was given the resources we had where we could really make the most impact.
0: Well, it sounds that you basically built it step by step and that you kept on trying to do more and more and then kept on building it and building on the wins that you did get. How did you inspire these people, people who probably didn't understand the problems at all or weren't even aware of the problems to start with? How did you show them what the problems that needed action were?
1: I find that um, a lot of these things are abstract until people um, have an experience with this. Yeah. You may go knocking on some doors, but the, it's always abstract, especially when there's no data um, unless people have um, know somebody or have experienced it. So one of the things we started in our educational campaign, for example, in the initial years was Every year we actually organized a fundraising and awareness program of sorts where people told their stories, their experiences, how they were diagnosed, what they went through. And that actually also helped a lot of people when they actually had the symptoms, the signs being described by people, making diagnosis. We had people who, who were referred because somebody had somebody saying something. So we had to encourage people to basically talk, because if people do not relate, they don't tend to engage. So that's how we we really built it. Maybe it's based on the old African way of of storytelling being how we get information across. And so we found that that was really what helped a lot. So at every opportunity, uh, we have to make it um, look as exciting as possible, that this is a a field that is... Viable, there are more patients that, than you thought, that's that a group that you can make a difference by, by joining.
0: Absolutely. I mean, that I think that process of engagement at every single step is something that we do in the clinic on an everyday basis. But to keep doing that, to build that momentum from zero up to what you've got, I think is incredible. So let's talk a little bit about the screening program because I think that really encapsulates a lot. That's quite innovative in that nothing really exists like that elsewhere. At the same time, you can imagine a screening program like that having enormous utility in a number of different settings around the world, including in high income countries where we really aren't able to serve the need that we'd like to. How did you realize it was something you needed and how did you go about designing it?
1: So we got the idea from um, a colleague who was doing something similar in, um, in psychiatry. There was a lot of cases of depression and um, they thought about short code for people who may have depressive symptoms. And I got to talking with, with him and, and said, you know what, this could be something that we could actually apply to rheumatological conditions and and screen them out. And given the way we could design it, it didn't have to include expensive tests, which obviously are not available to people across the, the district. And um, we were particularly enamored with the tool in that um, if we wanted to reach people all over the country, then we needed a tool where they didn't have um, to use a, a smartphone. Most of the country, as we found out from... A mobile uh, technology um, research that we did to try and encourage patients to keep up the appointment had at least um, a type of phone that they used. And um, so if they didn't have to use the internet, but they had even a basic phone and they could dial in numbers, then they could access a short code and be able to then dial in and then we could do a screening of sorts without having to even do any labs. And then based on the algorithm that we built in, then we could um, then screen out people who potentially had symptoms that sounded rheumatological and then link these people who then had these symptoms with these doctors that we had identified in the district program that I talked about earlier. We really were um, so enthusiastic about this because it was low resource and for them to discuss cases and um, consult with each other, send pictures, and and develop a proper telemedicine or telehealth sort of platform to make it a bit more um, holistic or engaging, and uh, hopefully use that as a teaching point for people who want to learn more about rheumatology in depth.
0: Oh, certainly. Well, what I'd really like to ask you a bit about now is what motivated you to do this in the first place, this massive undertaking? It's an incredible body of work, And you've put this together over a substantial period of time. What made you decide that this was something that you needed to do? Was this something that came naturally? Or was this something that gradually built over time? I know that you've built grand ambitions here. But uh, what point did you realise that this was something that you wanted to do? And what made you think about this?
1: I, I, I didn't start off with any grand ambitions. I started off basically just wanting to improve patient outcomes, and and still that is my driving force and what can be done to make things better at any point in time. And um, maybe selfishly, it actually helps me because once these things are in place, it makes work in low resource areas can be frustrating with lack of resources, lack of manpower, the inappropriate tools to be able to do this, uh, to work efficiently or get the outcomes that you want. And so um, pushing for these makes the work more enjoyable because you can actually see results and so you are enthusiastic every day coming to work because you, can, you know you can help. So various things by being tackled, but ultimately hope that then it it ends up in a more holistic approach to managing a patient. And so the driving force is, which I think worldwide is is the end point or the goal for, for every rheumatologist or doctor, is to see that you have good outcomes in your patient. And so yes, the ambition to do... To achieve the target grows more and more. Um, Every day you see that, okay, I can do even more. I can build on what I've done. And so it keeps growing. But ultimately, always at the back of our mind is what can we do better in terms of our patient care.
0: So how do you think that works for people elsewhere? Because I think that there are already a lot of people in different countries who have looked at your program, TRY, and have thought that this is something that they could see playing a role in their home environment for their patients in their world. So how do you think this works in terms of taking some of the lessons from here and applying them to other settings? And do you think that this is something that we can start to operationalize on a broader scale? I think
1: so, um, I mean, worldwide, uh, even in, in countries where there are uh, more resources, we find that there are shortage of rheumatologists. And um, there's a need to find ways in which you can deliver care to your patients. And so getting um, other health workers, nurses, like we've engaged our nurse practitioners to be able to help us with our work in, in the district. For them to recognize these conditions. It's something that I think can be applied anywhere, whether in under-resourced or um, more relatively resourced places. And so we can all find ways in which we can engage better and use these resources to to help our patients and also help reduce the burden on the few rheumatologists that are there across the world. Patients increasingly are, are finding their voice and, and seeking for a more holistic treatment for themselves. And I think uh, when you engage our patients, we get better outcomes as well. And so um, I think that is something, again, that can be um, applied um, everywhere in the world, um, find ways in which we, both the doctor and the patients, can engage and collaborate um, in their care um, to, to get good outcomes. Um, in under resource places, um, we say that there really is no need to reinvent the wheel. The challenges that we, we face in Ghana can be uh, probably be found in most African countries, and um, finding um, ways in which we can do um, these in in these countries without a uh, lot of resources is something that I think we can really encourage, and we are hoping that uh, we can share some of these stories with um, other practitioners to be able to engage. Um, I've seen a few countries um, in Namibia, um, sorry, Zimbabwe, Zambia, for example, where a few young rheumatologists have also started some of these drives. And so it is something that I think we're going to see more and more. And um, I hope that we can share um, some of our um, knowledge and expertise so that nothing is been done all over again, um, that we can actually share experiences and resources um, across the continent.
0: And I mean, just thinking about the patient experience, it must just be enormously satisfying for you as a clinician, as a carer, to see how this works on an everyday basis in practice, the patients that you deal with, and the benefits they get from what you've been able to put together.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. It's so heartwarming to find, um, I have uh, a medical student who um, we had a, a meeting, supposed group meeting um, recently, and she says that she's written on her book that the care that she received that made her um, diagnosis possible after even she being a medical student after roaming for almost seven years. And she came to the rheumatology clinic and the holistic um, treatment that she got that enabled her diagnosis not knowing she had lupus nephritis. She's written it on top of her her book that this is the type of doctor or the care that she wants to give to her patients in future. So we find um, a lot of these stories, more patients feeling that they are being heard, that they can, they have a platform, they have um, where they can actually find that they have hope, um, as we said um, at the beginning, that our message is to build hope in our patients, that um, despite the obstacles, there's hope There's um, treatments may, will be available, there's, there's chances of recovery, there's chances of, of, of keeping your work going or finding ways to support yourself, there's chances of you advocating for, for yourself. Um, if we can build hope in our patients, then our work is really done. so
0: that is what we try to do. Ziva, that's incredibly inspiring. I'd really like to hear now where you think this is going to go in the future. What does the future hold for TRY? What do you think the new challenges that you're going to be taking on are going forward? And how do you think that you can build on what you've got to sustain and to gain even more for your patients?
1: So, so there's still a lot of work to be done. In fact, um, they said as, you, as you grow, you find out that you need even more uh, because then the patient pool is bigger. You'd, you want to tackle more complicated uh, problems. We have things like um, lab services that are still not available. Uh, we did an audit of our patients um, who come to clinic and don't come back again and realized that that was quite a substantial amount. About 10 to 15% come for the first visit and don't return because you give them labs to go and do to confirm their diagnosis. And they go and get the cost, and they don't show up again. Because these labs, um, serological tests, are not, still not available or not done in-country. They have to be sent out to South Africa or Germany. And takes about two weeks to come back, a long turnaround time, which delays diagnosis, treatment, and it's expensive. So we still have capacity building in that aspect to do, which would bring the lab costs down for the patient and reduce the cost of diagnosis. They'll tell you these conditions are expensive diseases. They are not meant for poor people to have. So, and um, we hope that there's ways in which we can, we can bring those costs down. We still have a lot of advocacy to do, for especially for our health care managers to be able to put emphasis or priority on rheumatological conditions. And so we're working on building databases and registries um, of these conditions, um, looking at the impact on the patients and on society at large, young, vulnerable group, um, how they should be taken more, more seriously and the, the burden on the health care system when they are not um, taken care of so that we, we, we can hopefully then be able to make um, our case a little bit more strongly. In terms of medications for patients, that's a huge challenge. Um, drugs are not readily available. They are expensive. You have generics, you don't have um, access to biologics. And so we also have a lot of advocate advocacy to do in that area to be able to bring costs down or advocate for pharmaceuticals to reduce cost of medications um, or increase access to some of these biologics or biosimilars if, if needed for the patients to be able to um, get the optimum quality of care. We ultimately want a centers of excellence where there are low mortalities as we've seen elsewhere. As care is improving in other diseases, we. We hope that that translates into the same for patients with rheumatological conditions as well, that none of them um, is left behind, uh, which is one of the slogans that we use in our support group as well, that no one gets left behind, um, that we find ways in which we can do this. So research, um, advocacy, um, building databases, um, there's still a lot of work to be done um, all around, and so um, our work is not
0: yet done at all well i strongly suspect that you're not going to stop until you keep on getting further and further and what a base that you've got to build on thank you so much for talking to us today on clinical realities by the Lancet rheumatology
1: thank you very much for having me as well
0: and thanks to you the listener for joining us today I'm David Liu, and I hope you can join us for more episodes of Clinical Realities by the Alliance of Rheumatology, where we explore some amazing stories from around the world about unmet need in rheumatology.